You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet the model of how zoos and international governments and different countries can work together to take an animal that's extinct in the wild and then repopulate them back. What can they teach us? Recognize that the, the raven oryx were in trouble. And so they actually formed up with the, the World Wildlife Foundation. That's right when they came out in the early 60s and said, hey, we need to save these animals. So they called it Operation Oryx. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to Our Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. And it's been too long, Angie. We're, we're overdue recording a species. We've been so busy recording interviews, but finally getting to one of your favorites. Oh, absolutely. We're talking about the Arabian orcs today also known as the Oryx leucorix. Usually Chris does the scientific names, but <laughs> yes, they're the Latin names, but it rhymes. It's easy to say. And they are so near and dear to my heart. I worked with them for seven years at the zoo and the Arabian Oryx conservation story is one for the ages. It's super hopeful. And it really set the model of how zoos and international governments and different countries can work together to take an animal that's extinct in the wild and then repopulate them back into the wild. Uh, and so it's just a, it's a brilliant story uh, about hope and conservation. And for me personally, there was nothing more special than working with an Arabian orx. And I'll tell you why, because they're just so gorgeous mm -hmm. and they're, mm -hmm. oh, they're just, they're adapted for this desert living and extreme harsh conditions and so their physiology is just super fascinating as well and of course with those long slender horns uh, we'll talk about the unicorn myth mm -hmm. uh, that potentially even came from looking at them so yeah it's going to be a great pod today for sure oh i mean extinct in the wild so mm -hmm. that means there's no animals in the wild they're all held under human care too vulnerable so not only are they, they went through the critically endangered, endangered, now they're just vulnerable. Like that is, it's, it's an incredible conservation story on how these animals were, were left to just a handful. Uh, it reminds me of Przewalski horse, extinct in the wild, brought back from the brink. Black-footed ferret, extinct in the wild, brought back from the brink. Now Arabian oryx. So I'm finally glad we're telling the story. And 
And then also how they survive in the deserts of Arabia, their physiology, just wow. Yeah. Well, and just because I got to work with uh, four amazing Arabian orcs in my tenure at the zoo, this podcast has to go out to Aladdin, Jasmine, Azba, and Sodom. They were just, their personalities were fascinating and unique, and they're sassy and smashy because remember when animals have horns, they know how to use them. And so, and I almost died um, by Asba, but uh, that's a story I'll tell to you in the podcast. Uh, Maybe not die. That's a little dramatic. I was close to being gored pretty, pretty heavily um, in um, some of my nether regions. So yes, but uh, I didn't, that didn't happen. So I'll definitely share that story, but (laughs) there you go. There's the music. No, there's more music coming up too, but all right, okay, all right. just, yeah, just huge, huge personalities on these guys. And I'll tell you what too, Chris, this past couple of weeks I've been prepping for orcs, but mm. uh, just this past weekend I sat down and I really started putting my slides together and doing a lot of the research. And I found myself sobbing, missing these. It's true though. I mean, I- Tell the story, I just, tell the story, tell the story. I really- miss working with them and of course i've worked with tons of hoofstock animals and other species throughout my like my <laughs> career but i hi that music is she can't that. Okay. you are definitely helping me not cry that's that's good right now <laughs> okay, uh, good, but good, no good. i just be, i'll tell you what what really brought the tears mm-hmm. on besides hormones probably mm-hmm. uh is that i put it together and yes i did i i have i have not worked with orcs for 12 plus years, 15 years. For the first time, Chris, I really sank in, and this was just yesterday, mm-hmm. that the Arabian orcs is the only animal that I've ever worked with that was extinct in the wild. Yeah. Because I didn't work with pea horses, mm-hmm. and um, I do work on black-footed ferrets, helping with, like, understand more about their blood and uh, phytoestrogens and things like this. But I've, I've never worked with a black-footed ferret. I don't know one by name. I don't know its personality. So the four Arabian orcs that I worked with day in and day out, and I knew their sassy, smashy attitudes, uh, and I fell in love with them. And I, it just really hit me that, wow, if all the conservation efforts that we're going to talk about starting uh, over in the Middle East and then moving over here to the U.S. with the Phoenix Zoo and um, San Diego Zoo, mm-hmm. If that wouldn't have happened in the 70s, I would have never known those four Arabian orcs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not to make it all about me, but I just was like their personality and their beauty. When I describe them, there's a beautiful, beautiful antelope, stunning. I mean, that wouldn't have happened. And it just really hit me that like my kids, your kids, my my grandkids, my great grandkids, like if we don't kick in high gear with some of these species, they're not going to be able to meet them. Like yeah. the Arabian orcs was almost lost in my lifetime. And I, I, I guess I didn't really put that together because I was seeing them every day and working with them. And, uh, and obviously I, I wasn't quite as much of a conservation buff as I am now. But after doing this podcast for five years and you and I hearing all these stories and learning a lot more. So I don't know. I, it was just, it was a, uh, for me, this is a really special podcast. And I, I really think that, um, it's a good story. It's a great story. Mm-hmm. I got to interact with Arabian orcs and they are just awesome. And I'm sure all the zookeepers out there that uh, currently have worked with them or wildlife enthusiasts that have now seen them in the wild, which they couldn't do in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 
are on board. And it, it does, it seems like to be an international effort and collaboration because people want to save them. And that just, I just got goosebumps saying that. So, uh, so no more tears. It's a, it's a <laughs> hopeful story, but I, gosh, I miss those little buggers. They uh-huh. were so fun. And, and they were one of the species too, that can be pretty aggressive, even though they're not super large. Uh, uh, but of course, Angie, the hoofstock whisperer, after years of working with them, was able to build their trust. And by my last couple of years there, they would lean in and present their shoulder, their withers area mm-hmm. to me and their mm-hmm. neck and their ears so I could get in there and give them a good, good scratching, which mm-hmm. kind of blew my colleagues' minds because they just never thought that that would be possible. And yeah. it was. And so it, 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 it built that bond even uh, even more deep for me with those four sassy and smashy Arabian orcs. So. <laughs> No, and and the music is just uh, we had to upgrade our recording software, and so I was messing around with it earlier. <laughs> I told Angie I'd play it a little bit, uh, but but don't expect uh, more of that stuff. That is just <laughs> I got it. Definitely helped me not cry though, because I was I was a hot mess yesterday. <laughs> just I don't know why I was really missing working at the zoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then yeah, my yeah. kids it's came a, in the room, and I'm like, wait. I still actually work at a zoo. It's just yeah. with, the, it's just with uh, primates. Primates, yeah. No, and I get it. I get it because they are they they just are beautiful. They they are absolutely beautiful. I've seen them at the zoo. Also, throw in L.A. Zoo. You know, shout out to to Mike Bono, my good friend there. I had the the reason we haven't recorded a little bit as I did uh, take two weeks to travel back to the U.S. to see family that I had not been able to see in over three years because of the pandemic. And being locked here in New Zealand. So I did get to make the trip and just I was so busy running around everywhere. And I got to see my good buddy Corbin Maxi. Got to meet him uh, finally face to face after doing podcasts for a number of years. But because of COVID, we haven't been able to, to hook up. So I finally got to, to go there. I got to feed his gators. So you can watch that on social media. <laughs> go to All Creatures Pod, our podcast on Instagram. And you can go in our stories and it's in there on a reel, me feeding his gators. My heart was in my throat, but it was great seeing him. It was great seeing family. And and then Angie's been just knocking out interviews. So we have a lot of good stuff coming your way over the next few weeks. Uh, A couple big interviews. Um, One's going on this week. Angie's banked a few. So look for those. But we, I mean, we've been busy. Great interview with, Bob Poole, which was amazing before uh, I left. Elephants, yes. Yeah, yeah. And catch that on Disney Plus and Nat Geo. And then we've got some uh, some Path of the Panther that comes out on Nat Geo. It just came out on Nat Geo. Just came out. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. That was a good one Angie knocked out. And we got a couple other big ones that we're going to be promoting here soon. So, yeah. Sorry, Mike. I couldn't get to the LA Zoo this trip. But next time I hit the States, I will be there. And just quickly, shout out to Julie, Michael, Rachel, and Zeb joining us on Patreon the last couple of weeks. Uh, again, we we were away traveling, but we're back at it, uh, recording episodes. So thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I, I honestly want to give some money to the Arabian Oryx uh, organization that you cover today. So I'm going to give it in their name. Uh, once you name that, I'll send them some money. Awesome. And I want to give a quick shout out to Nesher, who reached out to us about uh, conservation in the Middle East. And uh, we've been going back and forth over email, getting to know each other a little bit better. We definitely want to cover vultures for Nesher because that's what she uh, Mm. requested. 
But in going back and forth, it was actually what inspired me to do the Arabian Orcs, uh, just to, to, to highlight some of the conservation in the Middle East that's often underlooked and mm-hmm. underappreciated. And so one of my goals um, in the next year or so is to, to highlight some more of those organizations as well. So thank you, Nesher. It's, it's people like yourselves out there listening that have either connections that I don't have or a different perspective that I don't have or just an animal lover in general. And sometimes these conversations and these connections come up and uh, they're re- really helpful for Chris and I and, of course, for our listeners and uh, for animal conservation in general. So please, if you haven't already, uh, follow us on social media. And if you're a total animal nerd like ourselves, we have a Facebook group all creatures podcast group where we have more conversations and a little bit more interactions uh, because we love, love, love hearing from you. Do you remember the species we covered that's just starting to be reintroduced into the wild and they do some good conservation in the Middle East? You wouldn't even think about it. You wouldn't even think that links. You remember? It's a bird. Cheetah. No, it's a bird. Remember? It's blue. It's it's the most endangered bird in the world. One of them. It's blue. Oh, the um the the macaw. Yeah, Spix macaw. Remember Spix, Spix macaw. is macaw. Spix is macaw. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when this came up and you were talking about the you know the Middle East or Arabia, Southwest Asia, the Al Wabra Wildlife Preservation, they are working. That's in, in Qatar. They're working to to save the Spix macaw. So there's a lot of good work going on in that region of the world and they are investing in their wildlife and and preserving it so so shout out to them and and hats off to them describing this angie i mean you were up close and personal with them i mean beautiful beautiful uh antelope oh yeah i mean they're white unicorns or actually bicorns because both male male and female (laughs) have the the long uh straight horns but yes in general the color of the Arabian orcs is almost a pure white, uh, very luminous. It can be white or cream colored. Uh, and then the undersides and their legs are brown, blackish in color. So it almost makes them look like they're wearing like long stockings. And so for me, Chris, it's the face markings. It just really was really bringing the tears in when I was seeing their little smushy noses uh, when I was reviewing all the photos. But uh, they have really cool brown black face markings that really make their faces just pop and so from the side they have a black brown spot that runs underneath their eye over their jowl and then when they're looking at you head on they have a black brown spot between their two horns and then a decent size uh, brown black spot above their nose and then of course they have a cute heart-shaped nose like a lot of uh gazelles and antelopes have. So it's really, really cool. And we'll talk a little bit more about these black spots on their face uh, when we get to desert adaptations. But researchers think it's almost like sunglasses and helping protect uh, their eyes from the glare of the sun and then the sun bouncing off the sand. So just, just really, really beautiful. And then as I mentioned, their horns are fairly straight. Uh, they do direct backwards a little bit. Uh, and the horns of the female, because both males and female orcs have horns, uh, they're usually a little bit longer and thinner than those of the males. And they do, at their withers too, they have a, uh, a little bit of a higher bump than other gazelle or antelope species. 
uh, and their tails. Super fun. The tail of the Arabian oryx is white, but then they have a nice black tuft at the end that just really makes them pop, especially when you're looking at them from the side. Just very, very pleasant markings, really easy on the eye. And like I said, just a super cute face. One that you would love to see in the wild. Like you would just love to see this. Uh, oh my gosh. Find them. Yeah, 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 yes. yeah. Yeah. Yes. And those horns, like you said, we can start with those because that's its most, I think, striking feature and, and seeing them uh, under human care, like, wow, those horns are impressive. Can get up to almost five feet long or over 150 centimeters. Yeah, the works I worked with, a lot of times they rub them off because they are always kind of like not necessarily sharpening them, but beating stuff up. They love, they just would love their enrichment, their barrels and all sorts of things. So I was, I was trying to think about it and I would say the Arabian orcs I worked with, their, their horns were probably about three feet. Yeah. Still impressive. Oh, <laughs> oh like I said, when yeah. they, when they're coming up close to you and your, um, in your body, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're way too close for comfort. Yeah. 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 So Angie, the size of these things, pretty impressive. Maybe a little bit smaller than wildebeest size. You know, you've been up close personal with them, but you know, different sources have different max sizes. On average, seeing lengths up to 48 inches, which is about four feet. Uh, height, four feet at the withers, uh, or it's 120 centimeters. Weights, anywhere from 220 pounds up to 450 pounds. Yeah, I never is worked it? with a 450, uh, yeah. but uh, I would. I, I think ours were in the in the mid 200 pounds. Okay. okay, I think ours were a little bit smaller on the smaller side, but uh, but yeah, I mean they they can they pack a pretty impressive punch for their. Yeah, yeah. You know, compared to other antelopes, I feel like they're they are smaller. Right. Um, but yeah, that like I said, that doesn't. Uh, they do. They do a lot with the the with their smaller size. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you said sable antelope, right? You worked with them. Yeah, and they're the biggest. And I, th- I guess that's why I think orcs are small because sables are just for an antelope are they're the biggest. They're massive, mm-hmm. uh, especially the males. Holy cow! Mm-hmm. But uh, with the orcs, they always seem like so much smaller. But I, but I, and, you know, in my barn, I had everything from Arabian orcs to Bactrian camels, which those you know, are massive. Two hundred pounds versus two thousand. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's all it's all relative. Okay, okay. Well, and so the Arabian oryx, as you know, extinct in the wild. They went extinct in the wild, so that means they lost all of their habitat. Historical range, pretty large. It's from the Sinai Peninsula, which is the northeast corner of Africa and Egypt, right? The Red Sea, right there, uh, up into modern-day Iraq, uh, down through the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, uh, all of these places, uh, Syria, Jordan, this is where they were found. Now, today, reintroduced, so where you can find them in the wild, and we're going to tell the story in a second, but you know, obviously Saudi Arabia is, is the biggest country there. And then you have Oman, uh, parts of Israel, uh, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, uh, Syria and Jordan. So that's where they have been reintroduced and doing okay. We'll, we'll talk about some of the challenges. Uh, why care? I guess Angie started off the whole podcast with why caring, yeah, right? They're so amazing. They're awesome. Yeah. They make me cry. They, I miss them. I miss working with their sassy personalities and smashy and just, and then, I mean, I think their conservation story, I think now is a good time to tell it, Chris, because that is the meat and bones. That's 
to me, prepping this podcast, that's really, really sunk in for whatever reason why why there was a 10-year delay. I don't know. Uh, but just the fact that they wouldn't have been, I wouldn't, they wouldn't have been there yeah. to work with. They wouldn't be in the wild today. They were that close. They were that close. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay. So previous to the 20th century, Arabian Oryx had a, a, a pretty wide distribution like we just talked about their their large range then with in the early 20th century so without getting too much into the history of things world war one world war two there was some military action there but then you're also getting automobiles and the oryx were just like angie said so beautiful and so they were shot and prized by hunters so they were just, they, they were being killed. Anytime they, somebody with a rifle saw them, they would shoot them and try to get their hides or their horns or anything like that. Also, the lots of oil exploration. So going into the wild of Arabia, into some uninhabited regions where maybe orcs could survive. So again, automatic weapons, automobiles, these oil explorers or whatever were poaching, killing oryx like crazy. Okay. It's reminded me a lot of like the, the American bison. Mm-hmm. I always forget the American bison were down to like 600 because mm-hmm. of the trains mm-hmm. and People the American out West. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Americans, they it's great expansion. Yeah. They would expand and they would just kill bison just for the fun of it and not even collect the meat or the hides or anything. They would just shoot them just, just for fun. So that's pretty much what was going on. Uh, with the oryx now by 1972 the last arabian oryx was uh, reportedly poached in oman and then that's when they became extinct in the wild but thankfully like you said 10 years previously they had people in this part of the world and conservationists from the u.s and europe knew the plight of the arabian oryx so in 1962 the Fauna Preservation Society, or FFI, as it was known as, recognized that the, the Arabian Oryx were in trouble. And so they actually formed up with the, the World Wildlife Foundation. That's right when they came out in the early 60s and said, hey, we need to save these animals. So they called it Operation Oryx. So they went in to South Yemen and tried to and, and tried. They did capture some of the last surviving wild oryx. So very hard to find. They found a little bit of a herd. So they went and brought some of these into under human care. Three of these actually went to, you said at the Phoenix Zoo in Arizona, because it had a similar habitat to that of Southern Arabia. Anybody that's been to Arizona, your summers are hot and dry. Winters, I'm trying to remember. It's so cooler at night, but that's just like the desert. So, you know, still not freezing cold. And they set up a breeding program. Then also they got in a female from the London Zoo and further individuals from the Sultan of Kuwait and Saudi Arabia's King Saud. So they formed this herd. It was called the World Herd and started to breed them. This was the emergency population. This is why Angie and I always get so 
fired up about defending accredited zoos that are involved in these breeding programs, like the San Diego Zoo, LA Zoo, all the ones, Bronx Zoo, all of them. Uh, even there in your backyard, John Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo, all are involved in preserving endangered species and helping to do the research and maintain these populations. So that's why we get so fired up about it. Now, uh, within 10 years, when the oryx went extinct in 1972, the world herd numbers were only about 35 animals. And then they started to breed at the San Diego Zoo, LA Zoo, and some of the others got uh, involved. Then in 1978, four animals were shipped to Jordan, where they were bred in captivity uh, until the early 80s, mid-80s. And then they released some oryx into a protected area. So like they started doing soft releases, not hard releases out. They were in, in protected, like we do with bomas. We talk about that with rhinos and, and mm -hmm. other animals. They let them out for a while, made sure they're protected. And in 1982, they actually released 10 oryx into the wild. That was a hard release. Okay. Okay. So that was the first time they were reintroduced. So they were extinct in the wild for about 10 years. Now, what was interesting is captive breeding, so under human care, very successful, got up to in the 1992, so you're talking a period of 30 years, you're down to a dozen, now you have 1,600 Arabian oryx uh, around the world. Now, as we find out with conservation, it's just not that easy. You just can't release them and say, okay, we're done. Bye. Yeah. So what happened is this, this herd of 10 grew to 400 in Oman, but the poachers returned. And in about three years in the late nineties, they reduced the herd to about a hundred. So they killed about two to 300 oryx over that time. So they brought the oryx back in to uh, enclosures in Oman. Now, since then, more protections have been in place. And they've re-released Arabian oryx now into, like I said in the beginning, Israel, Jordan, Oman, Saudi Arabia, UAE. So today, again, this is a species 50 years ago, extinct in the wild. Today, there's over 1,200 now in the wild. And again, we're down to a small handful, 6,000, over 6,000 under human care. 7,000 Arabian oryx are alive today because the works of Angie and others that have worked with them oh, when they were down to it. It was my predecessors. <laughs> I just got to rub them. I just got to rub oryx and, yeah, that, uh, and love on them. And, uh, and of course, they, you know, they had sired some, some of their prodigy. Well, some of, some of their prodigies, grandkids, grandkids are probably running free um, in the Middle East now. But yeah, you were but, a cog in the machine. You were a cog yeah, in the machine. Yeah, Lincoln Park Zoo did a great job yeah. helping uh, boost that population for many, many years. It's just, it's just such an impressive story. It's an exciting story. Mm -hmm. Operation Orcs, I mean, it involved six world governments, five zoos to start off with, but then, of course, it, as the population grew under human care, as you mentioned, then more zoos had to take them on and commit to uh, yeah, to housing that species and breeding them. And that's all, of course, planned through the uh, species survival plans through the accredited zoos in North America and then internationally. So it took so many organizations, 
uh, between zoos, conservation societies, hundreds of dedicated individuals in the field, mm -hmm. in zoos, veterinarian teams, uh, reintroduction teams, science, right? Like trying to figure out where should we release them? How should we release them? Hard or soft? So, I mean, a, a huge collaboration and just a great success story. And of course, they're not completely out of the woods yet, but for the fact that they were extinct in the wild and now they're like vulnerable, uh, it's just, it's just, inc it's incredible. And, it, and that's, I think that's what really hit me this week when I was uh, prepping for this podcast, because it just, it's, it needs, this model needs to be used for other species, right? Mm -hmm. Like it can, mm -hmm. it can be done. It, it has been done. And it, it, and we need, and this is what we need more of for so many other species that are in peril. Um, for instance, uh, I mean, we have to keep a big eye on the scimitar horned orcs. Yes. Uh, that's one of the cousins of the Arabian orcs, and uh, they're uh, from northern Africa, and they're now extinct in their native habitat. Yeah. And they only live under human care in, in zoos. So once again, when we talk about why zoos should exist for all the naysayers out there, uh, I mean, this is a, a great reason why for this reserve population of species that unfortunately are extinct in the wild. We want to get them back there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but in the meantime, mm -hmm. how do we breed them and keep them going? Well, it's through captive breeding programs yeah. uh, and a lot of collaboration uh, through different different zoos and different individuals. And uh, so, uh, oh, and the, uh, the addicts, which is another, um, it's like, it's, they're in their own genus, so they're not in the orcs, and Chris will explain all that, but they're critically endangered, mm -hmm. and they're only native to the Sahara Desert. So why should we care about Arabian orcs? Because it's it, that conservation effort worked. Yeah. Now, there are some issues, Angie, uh, for those that uh, Stop listen. Stop it. I'm, no, nope, it's all good news today, Chris. Please. Well, Don't go. make me cry again. I will start crying. <laughs> You know, I've been very but, sensitive. We, but, we haven't been on air in a while, and I get very sensitive when I don't see you every week. Oh, well, all right. So uh, I think we need to take a quick break, but I do want to talk about a concern I have. If, if you listen to the March Mammal Madness, the tale of the Saiga, uh, it is one of my concerns with, with this population of Arabian Oryx. But I do have a couple, couple papers, so there's some good news weaved in there. Uh, we're going to get there in a second. Let's take a quick break, and we'll cover that in a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
we'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. All right, Angie, welcome back. Now, yeah, you know me. I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm a big nerd. I'm a big science geek. I but you're like a cool nerd. Okay, I'm a nerd. I love genetics. I, I still can't fully understand genetics fully, like down to the micro RNA level, all this crazy stuff that a lot of probably some of our listeners do. Uh, but I always had an interest in genetics. I always wanted to study it because I find the field so fascinating. And we're, it, it's changing the world, right? The Saiga, that's why I, I brought them to the table in, in the March Mammal Madness with, with our good friend Corbin. Because hundreds of thousands of them just dropped dead in a matter of weeks, and, and really because of inbreeding, the, this genetic bottleneck. So thinking about the Arabian Oryx, I'm like, okay, where are we with them? They had a small population left after going to... Yeah, what was the number the you said? Like nine or 30? What was Yeah, so, well, okay. So it's hard because I didn't have hours and hours. What I did find, the world heard was the establishment. This is the, the Operation Oryx. Uh, there was two males and one female from Operation Oryx, okay, that they brought in those three that they captured in uh, Yemen. Then they brought in two pairs from, uh, the, I think, from Saudi Arabia, from Arabia, and then the one male from the UK. So you're looking at three males, or three, four, five males, and one, two, three females, right? If I did that right. That's your founding herd for the world herd that went up to 105 individuals in 1978, and there's close to over 7,000 individuals off this small herd. Now, I think they introduced some genetics from- Private owners? Yes. There were some Mm -hmm. private ones that they brought in. How many, I I couldn't find, but I think the data is going to show it here in a second. So I did find a good study from the Royal Society. God, I'd love to publish in there. That would always be a dream, but maybe one day. Anyways. Someday. (laughs) (laughs) Rescued back from extinction in the wild, past, present, and the future of the genetics of the Arabian Oryx and Oman. So this was from Rawahi and others. So Sydney, Australia, uh, and out of Oman, and yeah, that was it, in Australia. So I found an interesting study it, just to, to, to tidy this up. What they found was there's, there's in today's 7,000 roughly Arabian oryx, they are from three genetic ancestries, so three separate, Mm -hmm. and moderate levels of genetic diversity. So, yeah, I read this study, went through it. That's the bottom line. So just to give you the bottom line, that, you know, they have three distinct ancestries with some good genetic diversity. So what they used, and, and really laying that out, what that, why that information is so important is like with Angie saying, with captive breeding programs, we can know which ones are genetically diverse and breed them. 
So we ensure the genes are mixed and we're not getting inbreeding, right? That's, that's the danger. And John, your husband, John, and I talked about in a podcast in episode 301, species survival plans. And John kind of explained exactly what they are, how they use stud books, how they decide on who to breed and how, right? And when and things like that. So it, 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 it trying to keep these populations diverse. Now, Angie, I'm, I'm, I'm done playing the dumb piano. People get sick of it. <laughs> Let me tell you the story of the major histocompatibility complex variation in the Arabian Oryx. Oh, MHC. Yeah, baby. Oh, I'm such a nerd. Hendrix and others out of Arizona. So the MHC genes was an area of research. I think I talked about it with cloning the mammoth. That's why they need me or whatever. I, I don't want to be on that project to spend the money on elephants, but trying to find out where that clone goes because MHC genes are so important in pregnancy and how mothers don't reject a pregnancy, right? So I wanted to study it to say, hey, find the good MHC genes that are kind of universal, that are that are more tolerant of, a, of an interspecies pregnancy. Do you want so, to remind them, the listeners, what they're for? MHC genes? Well, yeah. it's immunity. Yeah. Immu- okay. Immunology. Yeah, yeah. So awesome. immunity, right? So I'm, I'm just going like, yeah, that's where my interest started. And then as far as immunology, I think for the broader listenership to understand, it's like with COVID. We all just have gone through this pandemic that's just lingering, lingering, lingering. And I've explained this before. In some people, COVID knocks them on their knees. It, and unfortunately, you know, like I said, I've lost people I've known. I'm sure many listeners have lost people close to them due to COVID, this horrible disease. Uh, some people shrugged it off. I'm what they call a Novid. I have never, knock on wood, tested positive for COVID. And, and I know I've been sick. I know I've been around it. Uh, Pip's been sick. My kids have been sick with COVID. I'm a Novid. I've never you tested positive. You and John, unicorns. <laughs> we got dirty genetics. COVID uni- yeah, COVID unicorns. I explained it as I'm half Croatian. So um, I think there's a lot of ge- half Haitian. They rhyme Croatian, ha- <laughs> Haitian. So I, there must have been a lot of dirty plagues going through there because I was a corridor, you know, of, of a lot of travel. And I, I just kind of assume evolutionary. My relatives have survived lots of plagues and we just have dirty genetics where we can survive a lot of these bugs. I don't know. Go Croatia. But. And Haiti. You, and Haiti. So. This goes back to the Saiga. The Saiga dropped dead because they couldn't withstand this disease. They were very not genetically diverse. They're very inbred. And they had this bacterial infection come through and kill off hundreds of thousands. So this study in Arabian Oryx looked at MHC genes. And they found the variation is very low. I'm just looking at one specific gene, one specific MHC gene. But you know, just to give you numbers, out of 57 animals, they only found three different alleles present. Okay. Okay. How so, many should there be? Uh, okay. Well, let me give in contrast. In humans, mm-hmm. over 179. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about three, three different mm-hmm. types of, of gene, you know, three homolog. How do I explain this? Genetics can be so confusing. So three, that's low. 
Arabian Oryx. Humans, 179. 15 cattle. Okay. So they have 50 different alleles. All right. Other species. This is where I found it really interesting. That's why I went down this rabbit hole. So, th- so they, they are inbred with immunology. So we have to be careful with that with them. Other species with bottlenecks. Bison, Angie. Mm-hmm. Only nine different alleles. Okay. Yikes. Przewalski horse. Remember? Down to 13. My horse. Mm-hmm. Four alleles and two alleles in another one. So two to three, uh, three average with them. Northern elephant seals. I don't remember this. I'm sorry. I don't remember this. I don't remember them going through a bottleneck. I think I remember them being hunted. Uh, so they were, I think I remember that now a little bit. They were almost hunted to extinction. Sure. Mm-hmm. Two, two alleles. Okay. Oh, wow. So no genetic diversity there. So, but they do say, even though the number of alleles in Arabian Oryx is small, meaning out of the whole population, well, they have 57 animals, but you can assume out of the whole population, there's only three different uh, differences. So out of the Arabian Oryx, you only have three different populations, you know, with different immune genetics, assuming all of this carries through. So it is small, but they said the allele, the differences is huge. So it's not like they're very similarly related. So if one population did get wiped out by disease, it probably wouldn't affect the other two. Okay. 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 That's broad view. And I'm not an sure. immuno- immunologist. I, I don't study these well, genes very much. Well, you're better than most of us. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> All right. So anyways, it just. For those, for those of you that are still awake. Yes. Okay. No, I love it. It's very, very fascinating. No, it is. It just, it just shows that it's. I, I think the the conservation story there is we can't let these populations get so low in these species. So when we look right. at African elephants, Asian elephants, white rhinos, all these massive megafauna that we love, all the way down to the vaquita porpoise, who's now, if they survive somehow, will be inbred. We can't let these species get down to these dangerously low numbers. We just can't. So anyways, that's my right, soapbox. Like, I, I think that, yeah, the biggest take-home message is that the Arabian Oryx is a, an amazing success story. It's a hopeful story. But ideally, the number should never have been that low to begin with. Because yeah. when you take a population down to 10, 20, 30 individuals, yes, you can build it up. But the... and. Uh, Yes, you can build it back up. And yes, they'll still have a certain amount of genetic diversity. But when you start looking at like their immune genetics and other types of things, it's not great. No. Yeah. And so you clone the mammoth. This one mammoth is going to bring back the whole butt. Just anyways, go back to our last elephant episode for my soapbox about that one. You know, bringing back species from extinction, they're not viable. Once they go extinct, it's very, very tough. It's you got to spend that money elsewhere, like saving the scimitar horned oryx now, exactly, Um, or the addicts, and yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and protect Mm -hmm. the Arabian oryx that's in the wild. Correct, because I mean, who's to say that that can't happen again, right? I mean, I mean, there's obviously still poachers out there, and Mm -hmm. and so yes, it's we we can't take our eyes off any of these uh, endangered or threatened populations. No, all right. I can get through evolution pretty quick. You know, Raven Oryx, Artiodactyla, Angie's probably favorite. Even-toed, odd-toed, I don't know. Love them. Yeah. So your even-toed ungulates, over 270 species. 
hippos, you know, almost kings of March Mammal Madness. Mm. <laughs> I still disagree with you both. Elephants should have beat hippos. Uh, the mouse, you know, got the, in the mouse, deer, giraffes, camels, all of that. And obviously our oryx and our, I always ask you this, Artiodactyla, they are in this order. They used to be on land, but now they're out in the oceans. Yeah. Whales, dolphins, porpoise. Yeah. All there. Okay. Uh, families Bovidae, very large family. Then you get into the subfamilies, uh, the the Bovinae. That's where you're going to go to Bovini. That's where our cows, bison, buffalo are. So in Bovidae, the family, then you get into Argodontia, which is going to be your all of your antelopes or antelope. And then you get down to Hippotragonae, to the subfamily of our Arabian oryx. Now, Caprine, you remember who's all in there? We've done a bunch That's of species. That's the goats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. T- Talkin, the, the Ova bovini. This is probably your favorite, the Talkins and Muskox. Mm, love them. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good stuff. Have we done muskox? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Remember, we did the wool. They they farm them up in Alaska. Oh, that's right. Yeah, oh, it's the yeah. yak. We haven't done the yak. Yeah. No, have not done the yak yet. Okay. Yep. Coming soon. Now, who have we done in Hippo Trigene? You've already said them. You've worked. With oh, them. um, uh, Niger, uh, sable antelope. Yep. 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 Niger, the sable antelope. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, so that's the subfamily. Sorry, I was thinking of the scientific name, but yes. No, no, no. And their genus is Hippotragus. So mm-hmm. that is the sable antelope, roan antelope, blue buck. The addicts, which you've already mentioned, is their own genus. And then you have the oryx. So that's the genus. And then with the oryx, you have the East African oryx, the scimitar oryx, the gembok, gemsbok, and then mm-hmm. gemsbok, and then our Arabian oryx, oryx leucorix. Hmm. So oryx leucorix yeah so there you go sassy and smashy yeah uh, it been around 60 million years bovids i oh my god i'm trying to get this dinosaur expert to come on the podcast that the day the dinosaurs died i read the book i am chasing them down i'm gonna find them i will we're gonna talk about that uh because that's when we got this radiation of all these wonderful species that we live with including us 60 million years ago, bovids started emerging. Again, Africa, a bovinae emerges about 23 million years ago. Uh, so that's probably when these oryx, there's not a lot on oryx, to be honest with with you. No. I, there, uh, I, I, I was reading that the addicts fossils have been found in four sites in Egypt. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just not, not a ton. No, there isn't. There isn't. And it, you know, imagine that part of the world, there probably isn't a lot of fossil finding it's such a harsh desert but, mm-hmm. but the, the closest thing i could find is there was a genetic study the oryx family emerging you know five six million years ago so arabian oryx like the scimitar horn oryx maybe around four to five million years ago is when they emerged uh so they're older older species well yeah and i think it also struck me because i worked the arabian oryx and of course i was very yeah, fully aware of their conservation story. Mm-hmm. But just looking at the genus Oryx as a group uh, prepping for this podcast and, and realizing that, yeah, the, the scimitar horned Oryx no longer in the wild, uh, East African Oryx, uh, critically endangered Arabian Oryx, 
vulnerable, but obviously they had their uh, huge conservation issues. Uh, really, the Gemsbach is the only one that stands out of, of that genus that isn't endangered for the most part. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And so I just, I, yeah, I just, I didn't really put all those pieces together until um, prepping for this podcast. And the Gemsbach is really an interesting story too, because they were actually uh, introduced in the United States. So oh, back really? in ni- yeah, between 1969 and 1977, the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish <laughs> in, the, in the United States yeah. intentionally, this was not by accident, oh, released 95 gems back uh, into the White Sands Missile Range Reserve. Oh, that's and, smart. Mm-hmm, and <laughs> so now there's actually an estimated between uh, uh, three to 5,000 animals. Uh, they didn't think that they would do that well. And I think... I think they were doing it for like hunting. I don't know. Anyways. Uh, and so, yeah, they, uh, New Mexico is the great climate for the, uh, for the gems box. And there is a population there. And I think they do some hunting to try to now maintain the numbers a little bit. Uh, so they don't go out of control, but what uh, could go wrong? Let's try this. What oh could go gosh. wrong? That's, That's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah Florida yeah, state yeah. motto. Um. Mm, gosh, I know this is not surprisingly not in Florida. This was actually in New Mexico. Yeah, makes uh, sense. So yeah. yeah, I just, yeah, these are things you learn when you're prepping uh podcast. So it's interesting. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful antelope. So the unicorn myth, we, we talked about this, I think back in Narwhal way back, like mm-hmm. 300 episodes ago. That the Arabian Oryx was one of the originators. And that's because when you look at them from the side, it looks like they have one horn. Mm-hmm. And not to jump too much into this, it it really dates back to the ancient Greeks. And there's some books in the, in the 1200s or the 13th century that they were t- talking about uh, the Arabian Oryx as being one of the originators of the myth of the unicorn. So they actually said it was a, a precursor or something like that to it. So that's why, but I think really when you do look at it from the side, you can see well, yeah, where the symbol horn, yeah. Absolutely, and they have that beautiful white coat. And so it, it all kind of makes sense because the East African orcs and the Gemsbach, they have very straight pointy horns as mm-hmm. well, both males and females. Uh, whereas the scimitar horned orcs, they do those curve backwards. Mm-hmm. But anyways, out of all the species of orcs, um, the Arabian orcs, they're mo- the most, they have the most white over their bodies and definitely from the side angle. So yeah, they were. Yeah, you can see how that, that gives rise yeah. to this unicorn, mm-hmm. myth, myth, unicorn, seen it. Mm-hmm. And plus it's one of the things you'll read about is because of their white coats and the heat of the desert, sometimes they like disappear. It's hard to see them. Ah, interesting. Okay, so that makes sense. like mm-hmm. they shimmer, you know, because sure. you've seen like on the horizon in movies and things. So they may appear and disappear and reappear and disappear. I and love all of a sudden it. you see mm-hmm. this one horn mythical creature like it disappeared. You know, it's magic. Let's call it a unicorn. We- <laughs> you know, so anyways. All right. Uh, Arabian Oryx, uh, not the fastest antelope. They, they, the only place I found they, they, they tied them at like 37 miles per hour, 60 kilometers per hour, and not a lot of data there. On average, lives about 20 years under human care. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot of data on them in the wild. But what we do know, I think their physiology, that one of the highlights of this is how they survive in that desert. 
That's incredible. It's just incredible. I mean, temperatures, I mean, what, 115, 120, yes. 130 degrees like Fahrenheit 45 sometimes? degrees Celsius up to 113, 115 degrees Fahrenheit during yeah. the summer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it gets scorching there, like really hot. I've been yeah. in the Mojave Desert when it's 115, and it is it sucks. Excuse my French. It just it's awful. I am. I mean, it's hot. They have low rainfall, low humidity, high winds, blowing mm-hmm. sand, heat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, how they do it with that white coat? Well, yeah, Chris. To start off, these white unicorns, or what the myth says, uh, the Arabian orcs, they have that white cream light color, and that coloration pattern is actually pretty desert friendly in that this lighter color can reflect the desert heat and sunlight right because we know that the color black absorbs heat right it's like Mm -hmm, something that's mm -hmm. very black will get very very hot pretty quickly whereas white reflects it and then on the contrary to that uh the arabian orcs they do have brown black colored legs and actually in the winter time they get their legs get darker in color and that's to absorb more heat from the sun to help them stay warm uh when they're and when the weather's colder in the deserts no and i anybody that's been in the desert it's so hot in the day and then it's freezing at night right. it's, it's a it's dichotomy like, right yeah. it's so crazy the desert weather is just nuts i've i've been out camping and everything and you know, one of the things they talk about is they have these thick undercoats so they can um, trap that heat. Mm-hmm. And so they can stay warm during those cool nights. So what are the other thing? What about their hooves? Because you were up close and personal. Yes. So I, of course, I love hoof stack feet. Um, mm-hmm. Rather, they're one-toed, two-toed, three-toed ungulates. I love them all. Probably the odd-toed, just a slightly bit more than the even-toed. But uh, the oryx hooves are are like wider than I would say, like, let's say, say sable antelopes or a goat uh, or a takin, which all those are cloven hooved animals. Uh, and researchers think that it's due to the fact that the wider, fatter foot, if you will, helps Arabian oryx uh, walk across the sand uh, almost like snowshoes. that we'll see with like uh, polar bears, right? Like the big feet uh, moving across the snow or if a human's on snowshoes in snow, this uh, little bit bigger foot and or hooves uh, helps them basically move across the sand, almost like sand shoes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty fascinating. Well, remember when we just talked to Bob Poole and you were talking about, so I watched uh, Secrets of the Elephants Mm-hmm. Uh, again, uh, with with Pip on our big screen when it got back from the states, and I didn't notice it at first. But in the interview, you bring it up: the elephant's gnarly feet in the desert. Remember those gnarly? Oh nails? my gosh, those oh, elephant yeah. toenails were. I mean, they made me feel better about myself. I'll put it that way. <laughs> you got You got to watch that show. It was it was amazing. It's so intimate with the elephants. But yeah, so it made me think of the when they were talking about their their feet and how they can walk across the, the sandy ground and just the evolution to get to that place. That's why these animals amaze me and why we got to, to learn as much as we can about them. It's taken thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution to get to this animal that can survive in one of the harshest, you know, 
environments on Earth. The only other one I can think of is we we did the um, which fox was it with the big ears? Uh, Vinick. Vinick fox. Mm-hmm. How the heck do they live? They've they've learned to survive and they've adapted. Physiology has adapted to survive in these harsh environments. That's why it's when an animal goes extinct, it's just not naturally. It, it, it's heartbreaking. It's right. so heartbreaking. Yes, because they did all all of this amazing evolutionary like feats to live in this this you know unique niche or mm-hmm. ecosystem that not many animals want to live in. And they did it and they do it well, right? Like the, the orcs live in these deserts that, I mean, long periods of drought, mm-hmm. four to six months without a mm-hmm. lot of water. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and, and the heat, of course, as you mentioned, and they're just like, yeah, I'm just going to munch on this little leaf here and there and I'll, I'm yeah. fine. I'm, I'm all yeah. good. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder why you were like And we'll tears. still breed and reproduce. And like, yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's incredible. It's, it's just incredible. And, and one of the rabbit holes, I had a lot of fun going down this week was actually about their metabolism mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and learning a little bit more about how they cool themselves with those extreme heats right when, we're, when it's getting up to 45 degrees celsius or 114 degrees fahrenheit and so during the summer when it's extremely hot and uh, there's a lot of drought going on right in these mm-hmm. desert envir- environments where the arabian orcs lives and so what they need to do is they basically lower their fasting metabolic rate and they'll hang out wherever they can find shade during the day under a tree or something and just rest Mm -hmm. okay and then at night they will get out and forage what they can forage now there's probably not a lot to forage because well it's a desert uh and so the orcs has been able to completely change its behavior and physiology during the dry, hot summer seasons versus the more hospitable winter season, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so researchers are, are are blown away by this. I mean, it's it's fun when you go and you look Arabian orcs up in PubMed or Google Scholar because uh, it's it, a lot of researchers want to know how they do this because it's yeah. so fascinating. And there, so there has been a few studies uh, trying to measure different uh, metabolic markers. And one of the things that has been seen and found is that Orcs can help conserve their water, right? So they can go a long, long time without drinking water. And and they are getting some from the vegetation that they eat. But during several months at a time, they might not be getting a lot of vegetation. So researchers are like, how do they do this? And so what they will do is the Arabian orcs will uh, reduce their urine volume. So they'll you know, stop excreting water that way. And they'll also reduce uh, the amount of water in their feces uh to try to once again keep more water in their bodies and they will lower their resting metabolic rate by at least 50 percent so that's just incredible and then chris the last uh desert adaptation i have to talk about with the aurochs is just so cool um one of the ways they control their body's temperature especially or their brain temperature so the brain doesn't overheat is um Orcs have this adaptation called the Ret Mirable, which we've talked about before. That's like a network of uh, small blood vessels that form together to basically utilize counter-current exchange to either Mm -hmm. heat Mm -hmm. or cool either arteries or veins throughout their body. Mm -hmm. But the orcs have this Ret Mirable 
um, that branches from the two uh, carotid arteries. So the carotid artery is the one that leaves, uh, basically branches off um, from your aorta and then heads up, heads up north towards the head, towards mm-hmm. the brain. And, uh, and so what this does is it's this small network of vessels allows for there to be heat exchange between basically the warm arterial blood mm-hmm. that's going up towards brain and it cools it from the venous blood that's coming in from the sinus cavities. And so what happens is uh, the blood heading to the brain is cooled because there is uh, venous blood is cooled from evaporation from basically the nasal mucus, Mm -hmm. which drains into the sinus. And as they're passing by each other, blood from like the body, right? Because the body's Mm -hmm. hot. It's been sitting in the sun all day. It passes by this cooler venous blood that's been stored uh, in the sinus cavities. And then as it heads to the brain... It's cool. The blood is cooled down. Yeah, it's just a way. Yeah, like you said, to, not to to cook the brain, right? So, right. right. We yeah, don't it's want just that. one of those. Yeah, those. It's so cool. It's these countercurrent in physiology. We find it. Yeah, one thing Angie and I always talk. You know, teach uh, reproductive physiologists is whales and elephants who don't have external testes. But how do they cool those testes to produce male gametes? And there's a countercurrent exchange with the pectoral fins and whales and dolphins and the ears of elephants. So you're saying in the oryx, it's like in their nasal passages and stuff. As they breathe, it, it breathe, it kind of cools down the blood a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so, it's more like yeah. on the carotid, yeah, 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 which is right, of course, near the nasal passage. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's super fun, and they're still trying to to figure out why. Which when we talk about why should you care about Arabian orcs or why should you care about these uh, these desert dwelling antelope that survive in some of the harshest climates in Earth, and they make mm-hmm. it look easy to not eat for a long time or to not drink water for a long time or just to hang out in this hot weather. I mean, we think about global climate change, there's probably some things we could learn mm-hmm, <laughs> from mm-hmm. them, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, it was just really fascinating to, to see that other people were very, were very curious about this physiology. But uh, uh, seeing them in, from this physiology point of view made me fall in love all over again with them. No, yeah, they're amazing. They're amazing. Now, before we move on to other behaviors, wolves' main predator, Arabian wolf. Which is critically endangered. There's maybe 3,000 left. So Right. I wanted to cover them. Yeah, that was another one yeah. that um, Nesher and I talked about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just putting that on people's radars. So the Oryx with their predators critically endangered. Probably not too much endangered of being hunted by wolves, but rather humans. Poachers, number one enemy of Arabian Oryx. Now, some of the interesting behaviors, there's one study that talked about, you know, during the heat of the day, they're not active. What are some of the things that you came across as far as their, their behaviors, roaming? Yeah, I mean, they definitely tra- travel a big distance. There was actually a study of an inter- introduced herd of orcs in Ullman in 1983. And initially it was thought that they used um, a population of about 3,000 square kilometers. And... And then later on in 1993, they went on to like keep studying where, you know, where they were living and what their range was. And then it, and then it was thought that they easily occupied an area of uh, 14,000 square kilometers. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, this contained more, you know, more animals in general, but uh, they will 
they they don't really have like a set boundary or range because I mean, there's such little rain in these areas that they need to travel for for where I guess they think it's gonna rain or where they think there's going to be food. A lot of the literature says that that orcs are able to detect rainfall from a great distance. And so of course the physiologist in me is like, well, how? I couldn't really find an answer to it, but there was some suggestion of smell, which mm-hmm. I mean, I I mean, I'm sure I, that that to me was plausible. Uh but yeah, so they, I mean, they definitely, depending on where they're living and where they need to travel, they can you know, definitely cover lots of different land when it's the dry season in general. So, but if they're happy and there's plenty of food around and they don't need to like try to find where it's raining and stuff like that, they will definitely just, they're ruminants, right? So uh, they are in the Bovidae family. And so they need time to lay around and chew their cud and digest their food ideally in the shade during the day. Uh, they're definitely a very alert uh, species that are wary of things in general as a prey animal. And so they, and they're also, they have you know, good vision. So in Arabian orcs, uh, of course, if there's a predator, they are going to run. Uh, they're going to try to get away. But in the same instance, when they are cornered, uh, they have horns and they will use them for sure. That's their, yeah, that's their last defense mechanism. So they and they and they know how to use them. So I should probably preface all of that that Arabian orcs are typically in the wild gregarious. Like they live in groups and they get along very, very well. The normal group size for an Arabian orcs is going to be anywhere from 10 animals, uh, but it might be up to 100 depending on when their numbers are high and depending on the resources that are available. And often with Arabian orcs, the herds are going to have a single dominant uh, adult male and several females. And then because of that, you can also see groups of bachelors um, out there who establish their own hierarchies and get along just fine until they can get their own females. The way the dominance hierarchies work in the Arabian orcs is pretty much through a lot of posturing displays. So just acting tough. Uh, In general, they don't want to spar. They don't want to get hurt. Uh, They know that the horn's can hurt, will hurt. They'll usually just try to act really big and tough, maybe make a little, you know, raspberries, what I call raspberries, a little bit of blowing vocalization. But when in doubt, especially the males that are either uh, fighting over a female or defending territory from another dominant male, they, you know, they will horn spar. And so it's, I've seen this before with males, Arabian orcs is under human care that couldn't, we wanted them to live together, but just didn't work out because what will end up happening is the males, when they go to defend themselves and they go to fight, they lower their head. And so the sharp horns point forward and uh, and then they actually drop to their knees a lot. Mm-hmm. And sable antelope will do this, too. And they don't typically gore their opponent, but uh, they will lock horns and they'll battle with their knees down and their hind legs up and they'll twist and, you know, they, they can, you know, they can hurt each other. So, uh, but usually that's not the goal. They don't want to usually take it that far. Yeah. It's usually you know, the bigger male that you talked about, the one that's weighing 300, 400 pounds, things like that, is typically going to just look at the smaller, less dominant male and, and he will turn his tail <laughs> and walk away. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they have a lot of that. Hoofstock in general that, that live in these herds, I, I just, they're very intelligent when it comes to social body language. They're, they're always uh, looking as to 
what the other animal is communicating to them. And, and so therefore they, they don't get in fights a lot. They, they don't, there's not a lot of conflict because they're paying attention to these small, subtle signs and annoyances and, and these subtleties of, uh, of hierarchy and dominance and, and paying attention to it. And then just, okay, fine. You know, you win or, or you can breed that, that female or I'll get out of your way. Right. Here comes Mm -hmm. the food. Okay. You're Mm -hmm. dominant. I'll get out of your way. Uh, And so it's usually pretty, it's very peaceful. And that's why when I think about seeing them in the wild, it just makes me really excited because I could just sit, you could probably just sit there and watch them all day, just chewing their cud and then getting up and getting around and doing a few things and, uh, or, or walking around, of course, looking for food. So that would, that would be a dream come true, seeing some of these introduced herds. That's for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, reproduction, how did we get from a few handful to 7,000 plus? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah. it helps that the Arabian orcs uh, is, doesn't really have a spe- specific seasonality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So unlike horses that are long-day seasonal breeders or even our domestic goats, which are short-day seasonal breeders, if the conditions are favorable and that there is water and food resources around, um, a female Arabian oryx can produce at least one calf a year during any month. Now, what the research is showing us in Amman and Jordan is that births are tending to occur during October to May, but technically there's no seasonality. Mm-hmm. And then as far as male and female uh, reproductive behavior goes, uh, as far as courtship, of course, the female needs to be an estrus. I didn't really find any details about the length in that. There's still a lot, I think, that we're learning about Arabian orcs um, and their specific reproductive physiology. But I do know that there's a lot of pheromones involved as far as the male being able to know when the female is an estrus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll sometimes do that flimmin response, right, to check uh, the hormones either in her uh, urine or her feces or that she's, uh, she's expressing to the world. And when a female oryx does become pregnant, her gestation period is about 240 days. So it's a pretty good length. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she typically gives birth to just one offspring. And that offspring will stick by her side nursing uh, for about four to five months. And once again, depending on what the resources are like. And the offspring of an Arabian oryx, I feel that I was gypped. I want to go back to the <laughs> 70s and 80s and 90s yeah. when a lot of these zoos had tons of orcs offspring because they are darling. Mm-hmm. So an Arabian oryx um, calf is actually not white, not even close. It's like a light brown fawn color, mm. but you can still see the outline of their face that's going to be white and where the black spots are going to be are actually brown. Uh, And so they have a very darling face. And then of course their horns start growing once they're born. So they're these like little teeny tiny horns. And uh, yeah, they really only have markings on their tails and their knees that are like very specific. And then a little bit of cream on their face. And over time, that's as they age, they develop the white coat that they're famous for. So I don't know. I feel gypped. I want to know. <laughs> I need to have an Arabian orcs calf in my life sometime uh, to feel complete because they're just they're darling. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. And then other than that, their sexual maturity turnaround is a little bit longer than I would have thought for a typical like bovid. And what we've seen in, under human care is captive females typically don't give birth until they're about three years old. 
So it's a little bit longer uh, than that, that one year mark that we see mm-hmm. in a lot of the, the hoofstock species. So that might slow it down a little bit. But uh, yeah, and in general, they don't have any reproductive issues that we see in some yeah. of the uh, white rhinos and other other species that you and I have focused on. So that yeah. that's all good news, right? So now, yeah, we, just, yeah. Yeah, we just need to, to make sure that they, they're protected in the wild so they can keep breeding naturally there. Yeah, no, no, no. And it, it you know, being that they can breed well under human care, unlike white rhinos, that's what Angie was referring to. It's funny, I was just talking about your research this morning at work with one of my colleagues, your phytoestrogen work with the rhinos. Uh, but these are vulnerable. So from extinct in the wild, like we said, vulnerable, amazing conservation success story. Who are one of the organizations that have helped bring them back from the brink? Yeah, I have to give a big shout out to the Phoenix Zoo. Uh, and they, I mean, they kicked all of this off and they did a lot of the kind of initial research and, and observations of how to even care for these creatures uh, under human care and breed them and then what to do with the calves and how, to, how basically how to manage them mm-hmm. and how to work with them. And they did a fantastic job at it. And of course, uh, they partnered with other zoos along the way. But yeah, just a huge shout out to the Phoenix Zoo.org once again for people that aren't big fans of zoos. But these successful captive breeding stories, I think, uh, are uh, really something to to consider and to applaud these zoos for. Because it's in, I mean, I love Arabian orcs. I think they're stunning and they're beautiful mm-hmm. and their personalities, I will ch- Knowing them has made me a better person. Just, you know, thinking of all the people's time and energy that go into like caring for and fighting and wanting to save these species is just incredible. So besides checking out the Phoenix Zoo, which they can be found at www.phoenixpoenixzoo.org, um, I would give, uh, I got to give the World Wildlife Fund a big shout out. They still mm-hmm. Uh, continue to do a lot of monitoring over in the Middle East and working with the Middle East partners over there, uh, the population of Arabian orcs in the wild. No, good, good work. Good work. Well, it's a good podcast for uh, coming back after a few weeks off. Again, I was traveling and Angie was busy working. So uh, tons of interviews coming your way, more species coming your way. We got a fun one coming next week. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Shout out to all of our listeners in India. We starting to pick up steam in India. So anybody listening to this podcast from India, please share it with your friends. We would love to have a large following there. But, you know, from around the world, all of you listening, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for caring and thank you for sharing. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.